Welcome to the ninth podcast in our series, Life in the Time of Coronavirus. This episode, devoted to the concept of immunity, is longer than usual as we have gathered voices from different disciplines to disentangle the complexity of immunity in present times. You will hear, in order, from Mushopeni Jackson Maracalala, Associate Professor of Infection and Immunity at UCL, Mary C. Rollinson, Professor of Philosophy at Stony Brook, Evie Shockley, Professor of English at Rogers, Alessandro Cini, Research Fellow in Genetics, Evolution and Environment at UCL, Kenton Crocker, Associate Professor in the History of Biomedicine at York, Ensign Zhao, Lecturer in English Department at UCL. The pieces will be accompanied by the music of Herd Immunity, an album edited by Subphonics, and the tracks Joker by No Snare, Government Mandated Afternoon Jog by Drowsy, Quarantino by Quentin, Night Tea by Lodin, Staying Home by Tchaikovsky, and Sad Gasm by King Girl. All the profits go towards the COVID-19 Food Relief Bank of the Trussell Trust, to which you can contribute via a link in this podcast. Each of the speakers received an invitation with a blurb that you can find on this podcast description and that finished with the following question. Is immunity against a life in community? Hi, I'm Muslopeni Jackson Marakalala, and I want to talk a bit about my understanding of immunity in the context of public health. First, immunity refers to a situation wherein a person is protected or is resistant to a disease or a disease-causing agent. So immunity may be mounted or may be elicited by a prior exposure to the same disease-causing agent or via vaccination that induces a good protective immune response that eliminate the disease. So if I think of a code that is close to, to what I'm saying, I would actually think of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If you get exposed to a disease-causing agent and your immune system manages to clear that infection, there's likely a memory or an immunity that's induced that is in your system that upon secondary exposure to a similar disease-causing agent, you are likely going to be protected by that earlier exposure. Another way, if you were vaccinated, to trigger an immune response that is necessary and specific to a particular disease-causing agent. You have immunity to protect you against that disease. So that's what immunity means. 
But I also want to touch a bit about the concept of herd immunity that many people have been talking about since the the outbreak that we're currently having of COVID-19. So in this case, herd immunity refers to uh, a situation in which there's a bigger number or a bigger proportion within a community or a population which is immune to an infectious disease. That would come as a result of a number of people who have already been exposed to the disease and they recovered and they mounted good immunity or a number of people who are vaccinated and having a strong immune system against that particular infectious agent. So in that case, if you have a large number of people or a bigger proportion of people in a population who have immunity, chances are that the infection would never spread. Generally, there's a protection and there's a control that even if one person gets infection, they're not likely to really pass it around because chances are that the next person they come in contact with has developed immunity already. So that's what herd immunity means in the context of a bigger population having a protection against a particular disease. So these are my sort of uh, general understanding of immunity in the context of public health and also touching a bit about COVID-19. And of course, one, to be able to design things like vaccines, you really need to understand the nature of the immune system or immunity that is actually triggered or is necessary to counteract a particular infection. There's various forms like antibody-mediated immunity, whether it's T-cell-mediated immunity, and those factors have to be considered when you design vaccines. And thank you so much. The next piece is by Evie Shockley. On immunity. I want to think aloud about two meanings of the word immunity that are at stake in my poem, Philosophically Immune. The poem begins, Can I deduce the nature of humanity from the relationship of American and multinational pharmaceutical corporations to African women with HIV? Is it natural to test pharmaceuticals on people who are citizens of less powerful nations, members of a devalued gender, representatives of a maligned race? Is it logical? Is it cost-effective? Is the nature of the relationship of American and multinational pharmaceutical corporations to African women with HIV economic or human, economic or humane? In its form and substance, the poem questions the idea that we can determine ethical behavior or just conditions using Western philosophy's deductive reasoning. I imagine this tradition of logic as a shield that enables those who wield it to avoid reckoning with some of the racialized, gendered implications of their decisions. This philosophical shield functions as a kind of immunity, meaning protection, from accountability to the people who are most vulnerable to the problems that ethics should raise and work through. The poem's focus is on the degree to which pharmaceutical companies' drug trials 
in using African women as subjects, arguably leveraged poverty for consent and read their race, gender, and nationality as marks of their expendability. But I'm pointing generally at how multinational corporations' immense financial and political power tends to keep those entities immune from critique and responsibility to disenfranchised people. Revisiting the poem during the coronavirus pandemic, its questions about who we are to one another and what we owe to one another feel as important as ever, and all the more urgent as death comes for some of us with even greater speed. Most of us desperately want immunity or protection from this virus that passes among us with such alarming ease. In the absence of a vaccine, we struggle to accept how much one's own protection depends on the actions of many others, washing hands, wearing masks, keeping a safe distance, staying home. At the same time, we must remind ourselves that it is disproportionately poor people who are in the U.S. disproportionately black and brown women and men, whose inability to afford or choose protection for themselves in the fullest sense renders them available to do the delivering, cashiering, transporting, and cleaning that allows others of us to avoid the dangers of going out. Thus we arrive at the second meaning of immunity. Immunity is freedom. Who is free to stay safe, and who is not? As in my poem, race, gender, and nationality are integral to this question. Who had sufficient freedom before the pandemic that they now feel free to pass on the Black Lives Matter protests and the associated risks of spreading the virus? On this note, consider that the police in most jurisdictions of the U.S. have qualified immunity, protection from personal liability for violating someone's rights while performing their official duties. In practice, this immunity has long given them the freedom to brutalize and kill black people with impunity, and in this moment of nationwide protests, it has given police the freedom to deploy practices, tear gas, pepper spray, and group arrest that increase the risk of viral transmission, turning them on peaceful protesters like biological weapons. Finally, because the economy has proven not to be immune to the pandemic, we hear decision makers debate the ethics of keeping the nation's non-essential businesses closed when reopening them risks the lives only of the elderly and those with underlying conditions. These debates, once again, pit the freedom of the market against the protection of the vulnerable. If only we were immune to such logic. This is Mary C. Rawlinson, Professor of Philosophy and Director of Graduate Studies at Stony Brook University in New York. In the time of COVID, we all hope for immunity. The question is how to acquire it. 
As the wait for a vaccine may be long, some politicians have suggested that accepting the deaths of vulnerable populations may be the price to be paid for acquiring the herd immunity that would allow normal economic activities to resume. Sweden avoided the lockdowns of other countries at the expense of its elderly and immigrant populations. Lieutenant Governor of Texas Dan Patrick explicitly argued that the elderly of his state should be willing to risk their lives to reopen the economy. This morally reprehensible position must be rejected. To paraphrase Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, who commented on the care and wisdom offered by his 88-year-old mother, on whom his large extended family continues to depend, my 96-year-old mother-in-law is not expendable. She is smarter and sharper than others a quarter of her age, and accepting a pair of creaky knees has no medical problems. Her four sons and daughters-in-law, her seven grandchildren and her six great-grandchildren, as well as her extensive network of friends and the organizations in which she continues to participate as a volunteer, know that she, like so many elderly, is a node in a network of relations that cannot be replaced. This time of COVID calls for solidarity, as well as shared sacrifice and social distancing, not the sacrifice of vulnerable populations like the elderly and immigrants to economic practices that already exploit them. COVID has floridly displayed the inequities that plague our modern democratic societies, so it's urgently necessary now to think about other kinds of immunity. White people need to drop their immunity to critiques of racism. Whatever other disadvantages a white person may suffer because of gender or class, being white is an advantage. As a woman, I know well what it is to be devalued and underpaid and disrespected and subjected to sexual violence. But as a white woman, I am far less vulnerable to these behaviors than my black sisters. Racism isn't so much an attitude as a culture of probabilities. African Americans are more likely than their white peers to be poor, to live in a food desert, to suffer chronic health conditions, to be disciplined in school, or to be the victims of police violence. This is the legacy of slavery and systemic racism, and white people need to embrace this truth by dropping their immunity to critiques of white privilege. People of color are more likely to be essential workers exposed to COVID. We need to recognize the value of these lives and our society's dependence on them. At the same time, we need to develop new immunities to hate speech, racism, and propaganda posing as news. As Hartigan says in Sin City, the truth don't matter like it ought to. Without truth, there can be no justice, nor even the kind of collective action that is necessary for a society to act in its own best interests. Racists who lie about the origins of black inequality need to be silenced. Anti-vaxxers need to be exposed for the dangerous Luddites that they are. And social media giants like Facebook, whose governing algorithm promotes anger and hate speech, need to be closed down. It poses an existential threat to democratic society and solidarity. Just close your account and open an email list for you and your family and friends. If you are not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. We all want immunity, but let's make sure we get it in the right way and against the right things. 
The next piece is by Alessandro Cini. In recent times, our lives have been dramatically affected by the spread of a virus. Some of our communities are trying to react by increasing our ability to cope with the virus. That is, trying to increase our immunity. All social animals need to cope and find solutions to the attack of pathogens. Insects living in colonies, such as bees, are outstanding examples. Inside a beehive, thousands of individuals live in close contact, in a continuous exchange of interactions, food and fluids. Some bees constantly take care of the queen, while others are occupied in tending the brood. At the entrance of the hive, there is a continuous arrival and departure of foragers. This is a perfect situation for an epidemic. Indeed, honeybees are burdened by pathogens and parasites. Bacteria, fungi, viruses and ectoparasites. There is plenty of challenges to the hive health. How do bees cope with that? Well, there are several adaptations in the immune system, both at the individual level and at the level of the entire group, the so-called social immunity. A fascinating adaptations against pathogens, and in particular against some ectoparasitic mites, is the behavior of allogrooming, which consists in some bees investing their time and their energy in cleaning the bodies of other nestmate bees. In the western honeybee, Apis mellifera, this behavior is performed by a very tiny fraction of bees. In addition to performing many other tasks, such as taking care of the brood, these bees, called allogroomers, move across the hive comb looking for nestmates to be groomed. Some of them will even ask for grooming by performing special movement of the body, a sort of grooming invitation dance. Allogrooming likely evolved to remove ectoparasites from the bee body. And as some ectoparasites are carriers of dangerous viruses, it may also prevent viral diseases. Allogrooming is a clear example of an immune defense guided by sociality, which is beneficial at the community level. Interestingly, our research uh, recently suggested that these allogroomers, these cleaning bees, also have an increased individual immunability. They are stronger against pathogens. Thus, there might be a strong link between immunity at the individual level and immunity at the community level. And understanding this link might represent a crucial step to understand how to fight pathogens. In the future, I hope, we will get inspiration from the observation of how other animal societies have evolved adaptations to deal with viruses and pathogens. The next piece is by Kenton Crocker. Is immunity against life in a community? This question was posed to me by the organizers of this talk piece. It is a question about social conflict. Those who are immune enjoy greater freedoms than the vulnerable, who suffer in increased isolation. This sort of conflict likely permeates many households now, as families and cohabitants organize themselves according to their perceived risk, which is based, at least in part, on their perceived immune status. There are multiple solutions to this conflict, 
In my own family, for example, we've tacitly agreed to structure our activities in accordance with the needs of those at greatest risk because of their compromised immunity. We all act as though we are the most vulnerable, even if we are not. Other approaches are, of course, possible, but my point here is about the relationship between immunity and community. It is not oppositional. It is generative and creative. Immune status and communal life continually present each other with challenges that must be resolved. But the challenges themselves are not ever eliminated. Confusion on this question originates in part with our image of immunity. We often speak of immunity as though it were a defense that protects us from an external threat. There is a long history of societies depicting bacterial or viral threats as foreign invaders, and this depiction continues to the present day. But scientists have known for more than a century that viruses and bacteria are not always the enemy, and that immunity does not always defend us. Ailey Metchnikoff, one of the first immunological theorists, promoted the regular consumption of yogurt precisely because he recognized bacteria's role in digestive health. In 1917, Canadian bacteriologist Felix Derrell described a virus capable of destroying dysentery bacilli. He called it bacteriophage, and he launched a decade-long study of how viruses kill bacteria, a search that effectively ignored the simultaneous development of serotherapy, which was an attempt to artificially reproduce the defensive features of the immune system. By that point, the concept of immunity as defense had already been radically undermined by Charles Richet, who discovered in 1901 that repeated injections of egg white into experimental animals could trigger anaphylaxis, a horrific re immune response that turned a harmless protein into a deadly pathogen. It had obvious and important parallels with allergy, hay fever, and the serum sickness patients sometimes suffered when treated for diphtheria. The idea that immunity's purpose is solely to defend us from infection is individualistic and incomplete. Anaphylaxis, allergy, and autoimmune disease all demonstrate that immunity can also harm us. But what does this have to do with community and social conflict? The history of immunology shows us that immunity is not opposed to communal life by benefiting some to the disadvantage of others. This is an illusion, a dualist character that makes immunity into a human agent instead of treating it as the regulatory biological force it truly is. At a molecular level, immunity mediates the relationship between different communities of highly specialized cells that make up the biological basis of what we call the self. It also mediates this microcosmic community's relationship with the external world. This is a dynamic process that continually redefines what is and is not self, what is and is not community. This process is not restricted to the microscopic level. A century ago, a novel viral disease called Encephalitis lethargica encircled the globe. Its origins and its spread were almost incomprehensible to epidemiologists. Because all social groups and geographical areas seemed equally affected, they were forced to assume that asymptomatic carriers were responsible, even though none were ever identified. Its symptoms were often quite minor, but the neurological aftermath could be destructive or even deadly. The virus was never identified, but some bacteriologists attributed its bizarre outcomes to the brain damage inflicted by an immune response to herpes, 
an otherwise harmless and poorly understood pathogen. The effects on children were especially horrific. Their personalities could be utterly transformed by the disease. Friendly, well-adjusted children became purse snatchers, playground bullies, neighborhood terrors, or even murderers. Their fates were no less awful, as some were shunted off to industrial schools, asylums, or even jails. But their plight ultimately helped transform British society. Before the encephalitis outbreaks, many Britons blamed parents for passing on their so-called mental deficiencies to their offspring, who thus deserved only a minimum of state support. But the public, the courts, and biomedicine treated juvenile encephalitis cases with far more empathy as the result of an accidental infection rather than the product of poor eugenic practices. In 1927, mental deficiency legislation was rewritten to recognize that so-called feeble-mindedness could originate from any number of circumstances, including infectious disease. Parents were not to blame, and better breeding was not a solution. Because everyone was at risk, the state needed to take full responsibility. Even though these children were deemed ineducable, they still deserved empathetic care and appropriate provision. This was just one small step in the long and ongoing struggle for the true and complete welcoming of the disabled into all aspects of social life. But it illustrates how the interaction of viruses, immunity, and society can restructure community in a progressive way. Immunity is not opposed to community. They are mutually adaptive features of contemporary life. One hopes for, and perhaps even cautiously anticipates, similarly positive outcomes from our current pandemic. I am Dr. Zain Yao, a lecturer in the English department at UCL, and I have a question for you. Right now, what are you doing in your community, in your workplace, for social justice and solidarity with Black Lives Matter? If you're struggling to come up with any examples, or your reaction is defensive, is it because you don't feel that these issues affect you or those you care about? And who does the burden of that work usually fall to? Biological immunity, political immunity, legal immunity. As it turns out, the political and legal concepts emerged before our modern medical understanding of the biological processes. I had the opportunity to discuss these different perspectives with my co-host of the PhD of this podcast, Elizabeth Wayne, assistant professor in the Departments of Chemical and Biomedical Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. Liz was recently awarded a grant from the National Science Foundation to study macrophages in COVID-19. Liz talked me through the intricacies of the immune system, while I introduced her to biopolitics, the idea that politics is not simply the formal arena of government, but also about the management of life itself. In our full conversation, which you can listen to on PhD of his podcast, we explore the convergences between metaphor and organic processes. After all, we talk about war and immigration like we're talking about our bodies. We talk about healing and illness in our bodies like we're talking about war and immigration. COVID-19 has a disproportionate fatal impact on Black and Indigenous peoples globally because of historical structural inequalities. The killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Tony McDade, and so many other Black women, men, and trans people are part of the same biopolitical phenomenon. Historian T.J. Talley connects 
COVID-19 and the incident in which Amy Cooper, a white woman, called the police and Christian Cooper, no relation, a black bird watcher who told her rightly she had to have her dog leashed. Her fraudulent actions could have gotten him killed, and she knew that. Tally draws out the relationships between COVID-19 asymptomatic carriers and the structural power of white people, both of which lead to higher black mortality rates. According to Tally, regardless of whether white people are conscious of it or not, they act as vectors of asymptomatic lethality for black people. I think immunity is another dimension to this. Since black people are disproportionately vulnerable to COVID-19 and police brutality, we also have to ask, who is comparatively immune? Immunity is also about the exception that paradoxically upholds the universality of a condition. Think about political or legal immunity. Who can get away with flouting the so-called general restrictions that are used to predominantly police and punish black people in the UK, the US, and elsewhere? And so I return to my opening questions to you. Who gets to be immune to the structural effects of anti-black racism and colonialism? Who gets to be immune to the psychological effective toll of the ever-increasing list of names of black victims of police brutality? That is the reason I'm speaking to you alone, rather than as part of the PhD of his podcast pair. As a non-black academic, I do not bear the same burdens my friend Liz does in the university and in other communities. Who gets to be immune from the pressure to do certain forms of labor? During pandemics, the immune are asked to see their immunity as a responsibility to help those who are not. If you are immune, how can you use your immunity for the sake of others? Thanks for listening. Our thanks also to all the speakers and musicians who took part in this. Do send us your feedback and proposals at a.brainchat.ucl.ac.uk and find more talk pieces in the Institute of Advanced Studies website or your podcasts app. Sound effects are by the BBC Sound Archive, communications are by Patricia Mascarello Bard, production and edition are by me, Albert Brenchard Aguilar, and executive producer is Tomar Garb. Look after yourselves and others, and see you soon.